Well, today I want to bring a kingdom message in keeping with our Oktoberfest celebration this afternoon. So with that in mind, our sermon text this morning is Daniel chapter 2, verses 31 to 45. These are the words of God. You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. This image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. Verse 38. You are this head of gold. But after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours, then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. Whereas you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, verse 42, So the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. Verse 44. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. Verse 45. The great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray now, open this magnificent kingdom word which you announced so many years ago to Nebuchadnezzar and to the world. And Lord, now it is here, and we are your servants, and we are your soldiers. So prepare us now through this message by the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Around 500 years before Christ, God provided to the world a primer, almost a little mini-series on his kingdom, a primer, a mini-series that is known to us as the book of Daniel, and especially the first seven chapters of the book. Now, we cannot cover those seven chapters in detail this morning, but I do want to look at eight important things Daniel 1 through 7 teaches us about the kingdom of God and the fallen world into which it comes. The first important thing we learn is that the coming of the kingdom of God and its growth in the world often take place in distressing times. Chapter 1 of Daniel opens up with Daniel and his three friends as young men probably mid to late teens, taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar, emperor of Babylon, the ruling empire of the Mediterranean world of that day. Now Daniel, and as far as we can tell his three friends as well, 
will spend the rest of their lives as civil servants under multiple kings of the Babylonian Empire and then under the initial kings of the Medo-Persian Empire. And their lives are going to be a constant roller coaster of fickle kings, envious, conniving pagan peers, death threats, sometimes seemingly certain death, great exaltation and honor, and other times the threat of death, as I mentioned, rinse and repeat all over again, all as they are seeking to walk faithfully to the one true God and stand against paganism and idolatry. Their lives in the context of these pagan empires will serve as a microcosmic example of how God's people are to serve him, not only for the 500 years from Daniel to the entrance of God's kingdom into the world, but also afterwards, showing us still today how to serve God faithfully in often chaotic and distressing times while seeking to advance his kingdom in all the world. The second important thing we learn from Daniel 1 through 7 is that God's kingdom concerns not just God's people. It concerns the whole world, all nations, and all rulers. God's kingdom concerns the whole world, all nations, and all rulers. In chapter 2 of Daniel, God gives a special kingdom announcement in the form of a divinely inspired dream. But he does not give that dream to Daniel or one of his friends. He gives that dream to Nebuchadnezzar, the pagan ruler of the pagan empire of Babylon. Indeed, chapters 2 through 7 of Daniel are not written in Hebrew. They are not in the language of God's Old Testament people. They're in Aramaic, the official language of the Babylonian Empire. You see, the message is for all the pagan nations and all the pagan rulers. Psalm 2, for example, picks up this very theme, verses 10 through 12. Therefore be wise, O kings, and be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way when His wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in Him. And this fact again, this universality of the kingdom of God and its special pointed application to the rulers of the earth will be yet emphasized yet again in chapter 4 of Daniel, because a large part of that chapter is authored by King Nebuchadnezzar himself, giving his testimony of how God humbled him and brought him to faith, and then he will give his confession of faith to the Lord all in his own hand in chapter 4. The third important thing we learn from Daniel 1 through 7 is that the kingdoms of fallen man are really all the same. The kingdoms of fallen man are basically the same. That's what God is signifying in Nebuchadnezzar's dream by having these four uh, pagan empires of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome 
constitute a single man comprised of four metals. Some of the kingdoms are a little more glorious than the others. Gold is a little more glorious than silver, which is a little bit more glorious than bronze and iron and so forth. Some are a little stronger. Iron is stronger than gold or silver or bronze. Um, But it's basically the same thing. It's basically the same kingdom over and over and over, whether it's the Babylonians or the Persians or the Greeks or the Roman. It's very much the same to anybody who's living on the ground underneath these totalitarian regimes. Despite all of their pomp and their boasting, there's a tremendous amount of cruelty, dehumanization, and suffering underneath all that pomp and power. The fourth important thing we learn is that the kingdoms of fallen man are all like wild beasts. They're all like wild beasts. God makes this point in Daniel chapter 7 when he depicts these same four ancient Mediterranean empires in a vision that he gives to Daniel, except this time he depicts them as four wild beasts. There's a lion with wings, that's Babylon. There's a devouring bear, that's Medo-Persia. There's a leopard with four wings, that's Greece. Four wings indicating extreme speed, showing the speed with which Alexander the Great conquered the Mediterranean world. And finally, you have a monster with iron teeth, that's Rome. And so... The kingdoms of fallen man we see are like beasts in at least four ways. First of all, they're very powerful. They're very powerful. They tend to be totalitarian regimes. Secondly, they're insatiable. They can never get enough. They're always hungry. Third, they can be friendly. Sometimes we read of stories of wild beasts being friendly, even protective of a person And they can be that way for a while. But fourth and finally, they are always wild. Even if they are friendly or protective for a while, without warning, they can turn on you and maul you and kill you. Now we see examples of that with Daniel and his friends. Sometimes they're being exalted by Nebuchadnezzar. Sometimes they're under a death sentence of Nebuchadnezzar. One minute Nebuchadnezzar is exalting Daniel and commanding that the God of Daniel be honored by all. The next minute he's commanding that Daniel's three friends be burned alive because they will not bow down to the idol that he had made as a replica of the giant image he saw in his dream. We will see the same thing in Daniel chapter 6. Darius, the Medo-Persian emperor... One minute he's favoring Daniel, exalting him. He's one of the main governors of the kingdom. The next minute he is prohibiting prayer to anyone except to the king himself. And so Daniel is thrown into the lion's den. When we get to the New Testament, we see the same thing, particularly in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, time and again, the persecuting power is the religious establishment, the religious leaders of the Jews in Jerusalem. And we see this wild beast of Rome actually acting in a friendly and protective way. Again and again, it's the Roman soldiers who step in, 
who keep the Jewish leadership from doing their worst. At one point, Paul is literally going to be torn limb from limb, except for Roman soldiers who come into the crowd and take him into custody and save his life. So we see this wild beast being friendly and protective for a time. But in the mid-60s A.D., Emperor Nero is going to suddenly turn on the Christians. He's going to scapegoat the Christians and blame them for the great fire of Rome, and he's going to begin torturing and killing them, lighting them on fire, using them as living candles for his garden, and so forth. And so this pattern of intermittent peace and then sudden persecution is going to be the pattern that the early Christians live under for the better part of three centuries. The fifth important thing that we learn is the true nature of pagan gods and pagan worship. Pagan gods were just like the pagan kings, only more powerful. Paul explains to us in 1 Corinthians 10.20 that behind these idols... Are, are demonic powers. So a false god is not the same thing as a fake god. It's a false god because it's not the one true god. But that doesn't mean there's nothing there. There is a demonic power behind it. But these higher powers that the people worshipped in the forms of gods and idols, they were even more capricious, avaricious, immoral, petty, and cruel than the human rulers. And the goal of pagan worship essentially was to bribe the gods. It's not about a relationship, a true worship in the way that we see it, a relationship, walking with God, seeking to be like God. What they're seeking to do is to be protected from these higher powers. You want to bribe the God to keep you from doing, to keep from doing you any harm. That's the number one goal. The second goal, if possible, if you can bribe them to do you a favor, if you can somehow co-opt them to get them to further your own ambitions in some way. And that's exactly what we see Nebuchadnezzar doing in Daniel chapter 3. When he has a huge idol built, which is a replica of the great image he saw in his dream. So he has this huge man being built out of the four metals, and he he requires everybody to bow down to this great idol or be thrown in the fiery furnace. You see, Nebuchadnezzar is trying to co-opt the God of Daniel to further Nebuchadnezzar's own autonomous ambitions. Politicians at heart are always the same. And Nebuchadnezzar was a politician. He has this dream. Daniel explains it. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar goes, this is cool. Everybody has to honor the God of Daniel. And then he, he has this great statue of the kingdoms of fallen man. It says, that's what we're going to worship. This is man worship. That's what it is. And he's saying, I can work with this God. I can work with this God. I'll, I'll make our interests the same. But you see, the one true God cannot be bribed, cannot be manipulated, cannot be co-opted. You either seek first his kingdom or over time in history, you become like chaff that blows away in the wind. And Nebuchadnezzar is going to learn this hard lesson in chapter 4. 
The sixth important thing we learn is that in the midst of all this turmoil and chaos, which is just business as usual in the kingdoms of fallen man, God is going to bring about a game changer. That's what his dream to Nebuchadnezzar is about. That's what the kingdom of God is about. Right in the midst of these fallen kingdoms, God is going to inaugurate his own kingdom. But it's not going to operate like man's fallen kingdoms. It is not going to be a totalitarian regime imposed on the world by military might or political ploy. In contrast to the huge, shining, multi-metal statue representing the kingdoms of fallen man, the kingdom of God is represented as a small, unshaped stone. Not big, not showy, not impressive, at least not at first. Nor does its entrance into the world appear to pose any threat at all to the kingdoms of fallen man. It doesn't strike them on the forehead like David did to Goliath. It strikes them on the foot. But what is different about this stone is that it is alive and it is going to grow gradually but steadily until it becomes a mountain and it's going to continue to grow even more until it fills the whole earth. Like Jesus said in his parables of the kingdom, Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. It enters the world so small you can hardly see it. But it's going to grow, and it's going to grow to dwarf every other plant in the garden. The kingdom of God is like leaven. You have a huge recipe of bread, and that leaven is just a pinch. It's just a little pinch. What can that possibly do? Well, just put it in there and watch. And it's not going to progress the way the fallen kingdoms of man does. It's not going to go in there and start kicking out the other ingredients. That's not what it does. What it is going to do is transform the other ingredients. It's going to make everything in that recipe come alive and begin to rise up. And as the kingdom of God has this effect on the world, it's going to expose the kingdoms of fallen man. It's going to show them to be fool's gold. It's going to show them to be like chaff, all show but no substance. No true blessing to those who are subjected underneath the kingdoms of fallen man. Remember that the Hebrew word for glory means literally weightiness. It means heaviness. It means, in other words, substance. It's like the kernel of the wheat. If you think about it, the chaff has just as much size, just as much profile as the kernel. It may even be bigger than the kernel. What it does not have is substance. And so it just blows away in the wind. The kernel has weightiness. Now, the picture that we get in the Bible is that as we come to know the living God in Christ, and as we comprise and further his kingdom... We start taking on the glory of God. We start becoming more and more like God, taking on his character. As we are being transformed into the image of his son, Jesus, what that is doing is making us weighty. 
It's making us heavy with glory. It's filling us with true and godly substance. And that is what is going to happen as the kingdom of God grows in the earth. Now, our seventh and eight points are really kind of points of application here. The first one, number seven, is going to be a theological point. And that is, when does God's kingdom enter the world and through whom? The eighth point will be more directly application for how we are to live as Christians. So here is the seventh important thing that we learn in Daniel chapter 1 through 7. The kingdom of God, this is something we have to get as the modern evangelical church. The kingdom of God was inaugurated by the Lord Jesus Christ during his first advent which was 2,000 years ago in the first century. The kingdom of God was inaugurated by the Lord Jesus Christ during his first advent, which was in the first century A.D. Remember, God's dream given to Nebuchadnezzar shows the stone of the kingdom of God striking the statue on the foot which means that God inaugurates his kingdom during the days of the ancient Roman Empire, because that was the part of the statute that referred to the fourth ancient Mediterranean Empire. And, of course, that is exactly when the first advent of Christ occurs. Now, this is confirmed in more detail in Daniel chapter 7. When God gives Daniel this time a night vision of the kingdom of God. Verse 13 of Daniel 7. I was watching in the night visions and behold one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the ancient of days and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. That is the stone cut out without hands striking uh, the kingdoms of fallen man. This is what that this is what's really going on. The Son of Man ascending into heaven and and becoming King of Kings. Now, this Son of Man that Daniel saw was the Lord Jesus Christ ascending into heaven and being crowned King of Kings at the conclusion of his first advent. Now, how do we know this? First of all, we know this through this title, Son of Man. Now, if you think about it, Son of Man was the name that Jesus used for himself. Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Matthew 16, 13. Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Other people called Jesus all sorts of things, both good and bad. He called himself the Son of Man. Matthew 17, 22. The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and the third day he will be raised up. What then was Jesus saying when he constantly referred to himself as the Son of Man? 
Well, if you study the Old Testament carefully, you will discover that the most frequent use of this phrase, son of man, was of Ezekiel. Ezekiel was a contemporary of Daniel, but he was located at another place. Son of man is what God called Ezekiel. You read that book constantly, he's calling Ezekiel son of man. And you will also discover that Ezekiel was a priest whom God called to be a prophet. So that was very unusual in the Old Testament. Usually those offices were kept separate from one another. Ezekiel was a priest, and God called him to be a prophet. So Ezekiel was a prophet priest. Daniel 7.13 says that uh, that Daniel saw one like the Son of Man, one like... Ezekiel, In other words, a prophet priest come on the clouds into heaven before the ancient of days and be crowned as king of kings. That's what he saw. He saw a prophet priest come on the clouds of heaven into heaven before the ancient of days and be crowned kings of kings that all people's nations and languages should serve him. So every time Jesus called himself the Son of Man, he was saying, I am the one Daniel saw, and now is the time. I am the one who Daniel saw, and now is the time. Consider Acts chapter 7, verse 55. Stephen here is about to be martyred, the very first Christian martyr. And as he is about to be stoned, he looks up, he gazes into heaven, and it says, he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And Stephen said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing At the right hand of God, the right hand of God, that's the place of power and authority because God has exalted him and crowned him as king of kings. Now, the mistake that the modern church makes is that it tends to separate Christ's kingship from his priesthood. Now, if you ask the modern church, they will tell you that Jesus is completely priest right now. He is the perfect priest right now. He achieved that during his first advent in his uh, his perfect life, his ministry, his atoning death, and in his resurrection. So he is the perfect priest. But if you ask the modern church about the kingship of Jesus, they will say something vague like, well, yes, he is king of kings, but not exactly right now because he's not claiming this earth and his kingdom hasn't come now. He really is going to become king of kings in his second advent when he returns. That's when he's going to inaugurate his kingdom and really become king of kings. So we separate Christ's priesthood and would he really becomes priest because see we recognize that if Jesus is not completely priest right now right here and now and perfect priest then we're still in our sins we get that and so Jesus is completely and perfect priest starting with his first advent and right now 
but then we want to push his kingship off into the future. The Bible won't let us do that. Look at Hebrews 7, verse 21. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Quoting Psalm 110, verse 4, verse uh, 25. Therefore, in other words, because he is priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. But let's look at Psalm 110. Let's look at the opening of the psalm. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The psalm opens with king of kings. It opens with him being king. Then in verse 4, it moves to priests. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Then it goes right back to king. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. The Bible puts these things together. It's the same time. When he becomes high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek is precisely at the same time that he becomes king of kings seated at the right hand of God. So Jesus is priest to the exact same extent that he is king. If he is not king of kings here and now, then he is not high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek here and now, and we're still in our sins. Now, thankfully, God does not make our salvation depend on us getting theology just right. Thank God for that, right? And so, yes, we, we are saved even if we get these, some of these points wrong. But the point is, the Bible teaches us that they go together and we need to see that because though we may be saved, if we disconnect his kingship from his priesthood, it's going to have a harmful effect on us in the Christian life and it is going to make us weak as we try to stand for the kingdom of God. Hebrews 12 verse 12, this man after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, priesthood, sat down at the right hand of God, kingship, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. You see, we often conceive of Jesus as sitting in heaven because he's resting. It's kind of like he's a prize fighter uh, resting on his stool in between rounds. He's resting up to come back in his second advent, and finish the job and really become king of kings. That's not why the Bible pictures Jesus as sitting. He's not sitting because he's resting. He's sitting because he's reigning. He's sitting on the throne of God. This is why John opens the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 4. Now, this is not part of the vision. He hasn't gotten into the vision yet. This is how he do. This is, I'm John, I'm writing to you. This is from the Father and from Jesus Christ. It's, it's in the greeting part of the book. And this is what he says. Grace and peace to you, verse 5, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. John, 2,000 years ago, spoke of Jesus already as king of kings. 
as ruler over the kings of the earth. Remember, the kingdom of God grows gradually until it fills the whole earth. And what that looks like at ground level is what Daniel chapters 4 and 5 show us. What does it look like? We get this picture of the stone growing or Jesus being crowned as king of kings and, uh, and uh, or you get the picture of leaven or you get the picture of the mustard seed. What does it look like in the nitty-gritty of ground level and real time? That's what Daniel chapters 4 and 5 are all about. Chapter 4 shows us the details of the long, torturous conversion of Nebuchadnezzar and then his confession of faith. Chapter 5 shows the judgment upon Nebuchadnezzar's grandson and successor, Belshazzar, when he rejected the faith of his grandfather and mocked the one true God. That very night, Babylon fell to the Medes and the Persians. That's how the kingdom of God goes forth little by little in history. Conversion to faith and also the rod of iron, temporal judgment being brought on those who are hardened against the gospel. And that brings us to our eighth and final important thing. And that is, what is our part as the people of God? And due to time, I'm going to have to keep this super simple. I'm just going to point out two big picture things. First one. Worship the one true God through Jesus Christ. Worship the one true God through Jesus Christ. That's what the stone cut out without hands is all about. You see, God said in the Old Testament, you can see an example in Exodus 20, verse 25. God said, if you build me an altar of stones, you cannot use hewn stones. You cannot put a tool on the stones. You have to take the stones as I made them. You have to take unshaped, uncut stones. If you use your tool on it, you've profaned it. The point here is that in our fallenness, we cannot approach God in our own right. We can only approach Him in the way that He has provided. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, Coming to Christ as to a living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious, You also see when we come in contact with Christ, what happens to us? We become alive. We become living stones. We're being built up into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God and Jesus Christ. That's worship. That's what we're doing here this morning. So at the heart of the kingdom of God is worshiping the one true God through Christ. Now, worship involves so much. It involves us offering ourselves to God even as he has given himself to us. It involves us communing with God at his table, communing with one another. So many different aspects to worship. But one of the ones we must always remember is that worship is warfare. Worship is warfare. Remember the conquest of Jericho. Six and a half days of worship, followed by half a day of military mop-up. Now you tell me what was more important, the six and a half days of worship or half a day of military mop-up? It doesn't necessarily look like warfare to us, but it is. Never forget that. Finally, trust in the one true God and bear faithful witness to him. 
Trust in the one true God and bear faithful witness to him. So many examples between Daniel and his three friends. I'll just point out chapter 6. God, Daniel's trust in God, his faithfulness uh, to bear testimony of God when he's threatened with the lion's den. The first part of Daniel's witness, though, was his integrity and his excellence of his work as a high-ranking civil servant. He was one of the governors. He has a bunch of envious peers who want to take him down, and they're looking for something to accuse him of. They're going to cancel him, all right? So uh, the thing is, they couldn't find anything. The only thing they could come up with is we have to attack him because of his God. Now, may that be true of every single one of us, that if they're looking for a way to come at us, they can't find anything other than attacking us because of our faith in the one true God. Well, these envious ones, they manipulate King Darius into this stupid decree of you can't pray to anyone but the king for 30 days. Well, Daniel understands what they're doing. He knows this is a public line in the sand, and this is not one that he can dodge or let pass. He has to stand up to this. So he prays three times a day in front of an open window so everybody can see, and there is absolutely no doubt. Now, Daniel was a man of wisdom. He knew how to be uh, politic. He knew how to be gracious. He knew how to be winsome. But he also knew that when it was time to just stand up and just be blatant, And that's exactly what he did. Now, Darius got cornered, and so he had to throw Daniel into the lion's den. But the thing is, you could see the effect of Daniel's testimony on the king because the uh, the king can't get out of this. But he tells Daniel before he goes into the lion's den, your God, whom you serve continually, will deliver you. That's what the king says. King can't sleep that night. You see the faith being worked into the king by Daniel's faithful testimony. Well, these things I submit to you, these things are are true for us every day of our lives. The kingdom big picture is often growing in a way that we can't fully see. It's growing slowly. But this gives us the picture of how we are to live. We're going to have some roller coasters. We know what that feels like in our culture today, but we're just going to keep worshiping the one true God through Jesus Christ, and we're going to keep trusting in God and bearing faithful testimony to Him in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.